public relations is one of those terms like marketing and branding. I'm sure you get this all the time. That's sort of convoluted, right? There's, it can envelop a whole range of practice areas, right? And results, but media really is a core aspect of public relations. And so if you're not getting media on a consistent basis, it sort of feels like, what are you paying for? This is Show Your Business Who's Boss. Listen in on behind-the-scenes, unfiltered conversations with my favorite business owner friends who take charge and make their businesses work for them. Don't just be your own boss. Show your business who's boss. I'm Pia Silva. On today's episode, I'm chatting with my dear friend and boss of her business, Renee Seely. Renee owns a super badass boutique PR firm, ERPR Group, that specializes in finance, technology, media, and entertainment. I'm not going to give it away here, but she has a very unique business model that blows other PR companies out of the water and can serve as an inspiration to anyone running a small service business on how to really stand out as an expert and get paid the big bucks. In this conversation, we cover topics such as how going against the traditional PR model is getting her clients 10 times the results, one of Renee's daily habits that keeps her on the cutting edge of her industry. We debate whether you can or cannot guarantee PR to a client. We discuss our shared addiction to to to-do lists and how we're both coping, and the 30-day challenge that we've both taken with life-changing results that you can start right after this episode. So buckle up. Here we go. Hey, Renee. Welcome to the show. Hi, Pia. Thanks for having me. So excited to connect with you here. I've invited you on because this is Show Your Business Who's Boss, and you are such a boss of your business, and you always have been since I since we met oh so many years ago through networking. Who introduced us? You know, I was thinking about that. I think it was Keely when I was working at my last firm. I was working with her and you, Smith. And you knew her what, through the music scene? I don't know how I know Keely. You just know everybody. (laughs) I don't, I don't know Keely anymore, but I, but you and I became friends and we stayed friends and that's so so glad we did. I know. Oh, so I knew you before you even had ERPR group. No, we had just launched and you knew me when Eva was involved, which was obviously an interesting transition. So when, right, when we launched ERPR, Eva and I were partners and then she transitioned off and then it's been me ever since. Right. She is the R in ERPR group. She's the E, the E. I mean, she's the E. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's fun tidbit because a lot of people think, right, ER, and I think we've actually talked about this before, sort of like Like emergency, emergency. exactly, because (laughs) we do you know, tend to work with people sort of on the fly and jump into things um, pretty quickly. But it really was Eva Renee and sort of stuck. (laughs) So she'll always be a part of it in spirit. No, it's a great name. And it's nice that it just, it actually was a authentic name from you guys. I, as somebody who started my business with a partner, would you have ever done this on your own? Do you feel like you would have started your own PR group on your own? No. I think I absolutely needed to have a partner. And I think if Eva was interested still in being on her own, just the long of the short of it is just, I think for some people being a business owner is the right fit. Whereas 
being really successful within a company is a better fit. And Eva was sort of the example of the latter, right? And I'm really the former. But if she was still interested in being on on her own, I would have her as a partner, but I don't think I would partner with anybody else. And I think she was really the catalyst because I think for confidence reasons, uh, I always looked to her and she was really sort of a guide and a mentor to me for that. And making the leap with her, of course, felt like you had a bit more of a safety net, right? Because there was somebody there with you. And I'm also a big proponent of two minds are always better than one, right? It's still why when we staff projects now, we always bring multiple people in, right? Because I think being on your own, it's helpful to have other perspectives and other people weigh in. But I think once her and I decided to part ways and she went back in-house, I just sort of ventured on my own. How'd you feel when she left? Well, to be honest, I basically had a nervous breakdown. I... It triggered anxiety like I had never experienced before in my life. And that was, I think, a lot because being having her as a partner was that safety net, right? There was a safety feeling and knowing that I was doing this with somebody else, right? And then being out on my own when, you know, I was still young, I was still learning and feeling like I didn't have all of the answers and I didn't necessarily have that person to depend on to even just brainstorm with. It felt shattering at the time, earth shattering, but I think it pushed me to invest in things that really helped me grow as a professional, both as a business owner and as a publicist, right? But also as a person, I I really invested, I got a coach who helped me a lot, right? And sort of put me on the path of, I started on yoga and meditation, which was really helpful and building those habits and and reading more and really looking to other resources to sort of brainstorm or build ideas around and not necessarily just being a partner. It really pushed me to do those things. And I think in the end, they were very beneficial to me because I think I've grown a lot since then. And I might not have been drawn to that had what happened with Eva hadn't happened. Yeah, she was like the training wheels that got you to do the thing that you're really meant to do because you're such a badass business owner. And I'm so excited that this is all yours. I mean, that you really have grown into the CEO of this business in an amazing way. Well, thank you. And yeah, I mean, I think that's a good way to put it. And I think also what I enjoy about having my own business, right, and being a business owner and that for better or worse, you're sort of involved in a whole, the whole gamut of things, right? Where I'm as much involved in the books of the business, right? As I am involved in servicing clients, it gives me a range of tasks to do, which I find challenging. And I think other people aren't necessarily well suited for that, not for better or worse. Yeah, you have to want to take that stuff on. I mean, you had to learn all about business. Me too. I had the same experience. Oh, wow. I have to learn all these things. I didn't realize I was going to have to learn all these other things. (laughs) Totally. And I'm still learning, right? I think there's still things that... We'll always be learning. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's a really important uh, mindset to have is that you always need to be curious and, and be learning, right? I'm actually reading, I feel like you'll appreciate this, Ray Dalio's Principles. Have you read it? Uh, no, I hear that coming up a lot. I'm going to okay. have to pick it up. I can give it to you when I'm dumb about halfway through. It's so good and so well written. And he talks about that, about always looking for the best answer, even if it's not coming from you, right? And knowing that you don't know everything. So you have to constantly be seeking sources to learn more. And I think as a business owner, success really isn't rooted in that, right? Because you can't know everything and you need to like know what you don't know and be willing to invest in those things whether it be building that skill yourself or investing in 
partners or team members, right, who can complement that. But I think that's so important. And I think that's really been reinforced for me as sort of a principle of my own at mm-hmm. since being a business owner. I don't know if you feel the same way. Absolutely. I mean, I, and I'll, I think it'll always be that way because there'll always be more to learn and there'll always be higher heights to get to. Right. If it's not this, it's something else, right? Yeah. I mean, I know we'll talk about this, but like, I know you've got bigger and bigger plans for your business, as do I, um, maybe going in different directions, but those are all growth. Those are all opportunities for growth. And we will have to grow in order to be the business owners to own those businesses (laughs) that we're trying to build, right? Like I can't own that business right now. I'm going to have to grow into being the business owner of that business and then the business after it, whatever, you know, iteration of this it is. And each iteration will have new challenges, right? Which is also why I like this Ray Dalio book because he talks about that. It's it's not that the challenges or even the fails go away, right? It's just they're different, right? What mm-hmm. you struggle with. He he said this one line that really stuck struck with me or stuck with me and struck me that growing a business from like one to a hundred people was equally as challenging as growing it from a hundred to 500 people and 500 to 1,000, but there were Mm. different challenges that came with each growth phase. Yes. So, and I think that's really interesting because it's not like it becomes easy once you become to a certain level, right? It's just different things you're having to, you're tasked with or having to face. Absolutely. You know, I've been thinking about that so much recently because I've been, it's, it's part of who knows how it'll end up making it into the final. It's part of the thing I'm talking about in my TEDx talk that's coming up. But this this concept that is, you're basically always building on the last aspect. Like you can only take the leap. You even use the word leap. I'm using the word leap. You can only take the leap, the big leap you can take right now because of the leaps you took before. And you will only be able to take the future leaps because of the leaps you're taking now. Like it's the same kind of thing. You can't get, you can't, build to 500 until you get to 100. And those are a certain set of challenges. And then there will be another set of challenges. And I don't know about you, but I think when I was younger, I still probably, I still think this inherently, but I keep reminding myself it isn't true. When I was younger, I definitely felt like there was somewhere to get. And then that was the, that then you would get there. (laughs) It would be over or something. I don't know what I thought. Like, once once my business looks like this, then it'll be, oh, then I can relax and it'll be over. And my business looks way it is much bigger and better than whatever that thing was I was looking for. And it's not over because now I have different things I want to go for. And that's just being an entrepreneur. I totally agree. And I think that also plays into, and I think you and I have talked about this over the years. And honestly, I've been super inspired by the way you guys have run your business in finding what's right and really making iterations, even if you're staying at sort of, I'm I'm small still and purposefully small, right? But I've made changes in terms of the clients I'm going after, the people that I want to work with, right? And I think that those can have big changes, even if you're in, let's say, within a certain growth phase of the business um, and learning to adapt to those and being okay with making those changes, I think is another skill. It's almost like a muscle, right? That you have to work out and and build and get stronger with time. But I think that that's equally important. So give me an example of that kind of like, how have you been pushing? How, how has, well, tell us a little bit more because I know that when Eva left, it was really you. You were right. the one doing you were the, the business owner and you were doing the work and you've actually, correct me if I'm wrong. So 
just a little background. We hired you when Eva was still with you, and you guys did the PR for That's right. our I hashtag think sellout. She was consulting at that time for me, to be honest. She, oh, really? hmm. yeah, that she had been out of sort of out of the business owner role, but consulting for me because she wasn't sure what her next step was going to be. But yeah, she was still involved. Gotcha. Well, you guys did a phenomenal job. Oh, I mean, thank we, you. You got us so much press for this art event. And I don't remember if you were, if you hadn't narrowed down yet, or this was just like, you took us on because we were also friends and we we, we trusted you. But in, in the world of PR, I think it's really hard to give. I think, actually, I want to talk about this. So PR, it's got a bad rap. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It does. That's fair. Yes. And I... I frequently and freely recommend you, Renee, to people whenever I find anyone that is a good fit for you, specifically because I love how your approach is really aligned with my kind of philosophy as well. So I so I get it. And that's why I can kind of stand behind it. When you did the the sellout show, and this is how you work with clients, you do it in this project basis, which of course I love. And I think that the bad rap that PR agencies get is this retainer model where it's like, well, we do the work. We can't really guarantee anything. And you and I have sparred over this over the years because it's like, tell us a little bit more about that. So you do, you only take clients on project basis. Do you still do that? That, That's right. And that what that means depends on the size of the client, right? In your instance, having an event having a quick right, four, six-week <laughs> project rate makes a lot of sense. For l- companies that are larger and have more going on, that might, might that may look like quarterly projects, right? So it really depends. But yes, that is our focus. And it was really inspired by the fact when Eva and I were at a big firm owned by one of the big conglomerates before, we would see that there are a number of clients paying what are, I still find, exorbitant fees to get maybe one piece of media a quarter, right? And public relations is one of those terms like marketing and branding. I'm sure you get this all the time. That's sort of convoluted, right? There's, It can envelop a whole range of practice areas and results, but media really is a core aspect of public relations. And so if you're not getting media on a consistent basis, it sort of feels like, what are you paying for? So that really inspired us to take on this project approach. And the idea is that we don't guarantee press because you can't ever guarantee we'll get you in the New York Times unless you're going to pay for it. But what we do is we look at what a company has going on. And based on what they have in the pipeline and what's in the news cycle, we formulate these projects that package storylines together and leverage this aspect of timeliness, right, which is so important in PR to make sure that we can achieve those results in a, in a set defined time frame as opposed to, you know, that 12 or six month retainer. And it's been it's been interesting. I mean, for us, it's been as much of a learning experience, right? Because and this is something we've also talked about, too, which um, I always love talking about this with you, the idea of having to say no sometimes, right? Because for us, we want to make sure that we're taking on the projects that are going to be successful, right? Because that's better for us and for the client. And 
each project we take on is essentially a business development exercise, right? We want people to leave happy and wanting to work with us again when they have another project that makes sense. And we've done, we've taken on projects that probably we shouldn't have, right? And we've had to put more time into it. And I think that learning has led into the transition I mentioned earlier, which is finding the right clients and working with clients who are in a position to tell a story on a recurring basis. Let's say maybe that's three or four times a year and really understand the PR process and are willing to embrace it as opposed to really pushing more what I'll dub as marketing material, right? Which becomes harder to place in the media because media doesn't want to run self-promotional content, right? So there's sort of a difference there and understanding what client is the best fit. That's, you know, been something I've had to learn and I'm still learning, right? But I think over the course of the last seven and a half years being project-based, that's played a really important role because we do take on things in such a short time frame that if they're not a great fit, it ends up not being good on either side. So let me summarize what you just said. Tell me if I heard this correctly. You, over the years, as you've gotten better at this, part of what your process entails or what it requires in order for everyone to be successful is for you to be really good at (laughs) figuring out if a client is the right client, like mentally, what they want, what their goals are, if those goals are realistic, if you can take what they need to get into the press and you feel because of all your experience that you can shape that and pitch that in a way that's going to be successful. And only then will you take that client on because not only can you be successful and they can be successful, but also it will be more efficient for you than if you take on a client that's very hard to place. Now you're going to get paid, not get them as much press, and you're going to spend a lot more time. So it's actually you're finding the clients that are most efficient and the clients that will be most efficiently, most efficient, and you will be able to give the most value to. And those are the best clients for you. Absolutely. Okay. And I'm still learning that. And I think what is the hardest part of that is saying no, because sometimes business is slow and you're like, it would be really great to have another client. But every time I've gotten in that position and I've taken on a client that I know I shouldn't have, it ends up costing me that extra time and extra headache. And the client probably isn't as happy as other clients would have been, right? And it's just taking more energy and more of your time. It ends up being a waste, right? And I could have, and we've talked about this before and it's always stuck with me because (laughs) many times, because it's it's still a muscle I'm I'm working out, right? And, And still building. But I, saying no is really hard, but it is so much more valuable to say no and use that time to find the right client than it is to waste time with the wrong client. And I've had to learn that over and over. And every time (laughs) I do, I kick myself saying like, you should have learned this lesson, but it is a telling tale because it it rings true every single time, right? If somebody's not a good fit now, they're not going to be a good fit later and better to sort of make that determination now and find the right fit so you can build that long-term relationship rather than sacrificing your time in the next two to three months. Right. Because I, I don't want to, I don't want to pigeonhole you into, into pricing because your prices is- should always be going up and are always going up. And I hope they go up between now and when this is even published. So I don't want to say what your prices are, but you, but you charge a lot. Like you charge tens of thousands of dollars for these projects. Right. Right. And so every client is worth a lot. And not only that, but a lot of your clients 
you will do a project and then another project. I mean, some of your clients, because you work with them pretty consistently, you it from the outside, it could almost look like a retainer. It's That's not right. though. You're just treating it as a project, which I love so much. It's like you're doing the retainer thing, but the, by making it project-based, you're actually, you're actually, you're allowing the client to see there's a goal, it's being met. There's a goal, it's being met. So it's not just like you're paying me for my time. It's like you're paying for results. That's the difference between the project and the retainer. I think it's so awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. And I think that's a great summary because it's true. And um, it's interesting. We just signed um, a pretty big client. I'm on an NDA though, so I can't mention them, but they were a big win for us. And we just wrapped a project with them for a big sales launch that they announced. And we had about two weeks and we're launching another project with them next week. So essentially from the outside, we are sort of their agency on record if you want to you know, put right. it in traditional terms. But we, they didn't pay for the last two weeks. And frankly, it was a thankful thing for me because we would have been spinning our wheels in mud because we don't have things, things aren't approved quite yet, right? And so there's not really anything we can be doing to be generating press. And so the two-week break is good on both sides and it allows us to reset and like you said, set those goals again so that come at the end of the three, next three months when this next project ends, we can really measure our success against what we set out to do. So why don't all PR agencies operate like this? Well, it's funny. I actually had somebody tell me once, an old client, he was like a Stanford MBA launching a fintech startup. And he flat out said to my face, I'm never going to survive as a project-based firm because you can't have recurring revenue. Um, and it's so interesting to me because, to be honest, I would say 90% of the people we work with work with us because we're project-based initially, right? And then they <laughs> right. love our work. So it's it's really what our, our hook, line, and sinker is, right? It's what reels people in. But to his point, I think there's this idea that there is an easier way of doing business when you have things that are recurring, right? Because you don't necessarily have to worry about constantly getting business. You have that, you know that that's coming in, right, for at least a year. And I think for the agency, that makes things easier. But I do think that leads to a bit of complacency, right? Yeah. I think... And it does make my life harder, right? I'm not in an easier position because I'm project-based in terms of I am constantly on the hunt for, for new business, but I also build these long-lasting relationships with clients that use me multiple times over the course of the year, right? And so that's those are the relationships I'm investing in. And they come back to work with me because I do a good job on every project, right? You know, I've worked at other agencies before and I worked in-house, right? So I've seen things from so many different sides in, in terms of how PR is executed and the results that come with it. And I was just always so unimpressed with the way retainer-based agencies operated. Mm -hmm. And I certainly don't want to put all agencies down because not every agency is in this basket, but a lot of them look at media relations as a junior task, right? Where you have a expert or an MD managing director who's sort of the, the 10, 20 year plus veteran comes in, sells the project, will oversee it, but they delegate the actual outreach and the media strategy to their associate 23 year olds. Yeah, exactly. And listen, I was 23 once and I was working in house and <laughs> I was said I get press, but 
I was learning and I was learning in-house from a team that were all media relations professionals where the EVP and the SVP were still calling press and had front page stories lining their walls because that was their profession. When I went to agencies, nobody was trained in media. They were write a press release, send it out over the wire, pitch it out to your media list. And that's just not an effective way of getting press. And so I think when you're on retainer and you sort of look at press that way and delegate it, you fill you have opportunities to sort of fill in the work with with talking points and messaging documents and you find other ways to make up the work but in the end that work has minimal value to mm-hmm. compare to the actual press because in the end what you want that's the engagement and sure those documents will inform the press but they're not going to get the press and i think that a lot of firms undervalue that. And I think that that's why a lot of people when they sign up with retainers are really disgruntled. You're not the first person I've heard this from. (laughs) I have this conversation often. I'm I'm literally pitching a startup right now who told me they spent $100,000. I'm not even kidding. $100,000 with the firm. They wouldn't name to me. So I don't even know the name, but they said a well-known firm over the course of almost a year, and they got them two pieces of press coverage. I mean, that's, I can't even believe an agency like that is in business, to be completely honest, because I don't know what value you're bringing. So, well, what you've done is you've aligned your incentives with the client's goals. I mean, I can, I hear that in some ways this is harder for you, but on the flip side, I have watched you build this agency and you get, you have established a reputation, like a very high level reputation that is continuing to bring you, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, continuing to bring you referrals more and more each year. Yes. I mean, And you've raised your prices quite a bit in the last seven years. Yeah. That's also an inspiration from you, Pia. Well, I every say- time we have coffee, I tell you <laughs> to raise your, raise your price. prices. I'm like, this raise- time. I know. And I love it because I need to hear that. And that's why I value these brainstorms so much because again, back to my earlier point, I do think having multiple perspectives and sometimes right. you get in your own head, you need Absolutely. to hear that. But yeah, that is, I'm definitely referral based. And I think that's another thing that's been interesting in terms of where I focus my energy. I always think of that. Did you read the book? What is it? The 80-20 principles? I, I use the principle. I haven't read the book about okay. it. Okay. But yeah. we've, I think, discussed it too. But yeah. right, I think for, for sure. me, I look at that for my relationships because the majority of my business is referrals, right? I'm in a relationship-based industry, right? I'm in media relations. So my relationships with clients, right, and and how I get them are also important. It's not something that I would necessarily right, put out an advertisement for, right? So I think about where do, what are my most fruitful relationships, excuse me, and that's one of the areas I think I've, I've focused on a bit differently. And it's been interesting, obviously, with the pandemic and how to build those relationships. But with firms like venture capital firms or private equity firms, where they have a portfolio of, a, of companies, those are extremely valuable to me, because one relationship could yield a lot of clients, right? Mm-hmm. And so, trying to, I guess, strategically network in that way, I think has been something I've been thinking about a lot recently, where where can I put 
my resources and plant my seeds in places that will be extremely fruitful as opposed to maybe just getting one client out of somebody. Right. And well, I, your your time is worth a lot now. So it doesn't make sense for you to waste even an hour with somebody who's not going to be as valuable as a different person you could spend an hour with or exactly. doing something else. Like Exactly. I, I will say the one thing, though, that I think you do such a fabulous job at and I still struggle with is like setting those boundaries. I'm often asked to have calls and someone will set send me the calendar invite for an hour when I'm only really <laughs> willing to give a half hour. Right. And I have such a tough time navigating that in a tactful way. But you do that so beautifully. Oh, yeah. Oh, thank you. Yes. It's a muscle also. <laughs> but you and I should talk about that because I think I think just having those boundaries, I, I, I think for me, it... it it was almost like how you can kind of blame it on policy. Like, oh, our policy is this. I kind of became that. My my policy is you get 15 minutes. And and if there's a reason to have a longer conversation, then we can schedule another call. But I don't talk to anyone for more than 15 minutes at first because no one, no one gets, I, I don't have any reason to unless I have a clear explanation. And I actually find that people aren't really turned off by that. They more like start to they really respect my time that so much more. And you can do that, Renee. Like your time is super valuable. An hour of your time. I mean, they need to pay for that. Yeah. I mean, and it's crazy because it sounds so easy. And if I were on the receiving <laughs> yeah, end of that, I would be like, yeah, sure. Okay. No problem. But to be the one to say that, but I like that, the our policy, because it's sort of, you have like an out Yeah. I think you should think of it like that in your own head, like my policy, because this is how I manage my time. Sometimes I, to be honest, like sometimes it gets away from me if I'm not paying attention or something. And then I get on a, I've gotten on a call or I've been in a situation where I'm like, ah, how did this happen? Like, and I watch, I feel like I'm watching my time get like stolen from me and I get really upset because I am so protective of my time. And I think you need to think about it a little more like that because your time is, you can, you could put a dollar value on your time and it's very high. So when somebody gets a free hour, it's like you're losing money. (laughs) It is. Well, and it's funny you say that because, because I'm project based, right. And because I charge by the project and the deliverables, I often have a hard time managing time within a project. And it's actually something I just worked on with I took an executive training course and it was something I worked on in terms of like implementing that because it takes away more time. And actually, one of the best pieces of business advice I ever got is from a family friend. She used to run HR for all all of L'Oreal in the US and South America. When I first started my business, I went and I had lunch with her and I was like, Sarah, tell me like what I need to know and from an HR perspective, especially. And she was like, track your time and know how you spend your time. And I started doing it and it was so insightful because how I thought I was spending my time versus how I was actually spending my time were two very different things. And the clients I thought I was spending more time on and were sort of a drag and I'd like roll my eyes at sometimes if they make extra requests, right? They were actually, I was actually being more efficient than some of other clients that I was spending extra time on. But in my head, I thought differently. And so it was so insightful. And it's one of those things that I continue to do because I find it so valuable, like the insights you get from looking at a week or a month of like, here's how much time I spent on this client. Because you can also, to your point about hourly, how much each hour is worth, 
you can see which ones are more profitable, right? And which processes helped you to get there. And that's something that I think, again, continuing to refine. But I think that that's something that's been super important when it comes to time for me. Good for you for doing that. I, I tell people to do that all the time. I find it very hard to do. I found it very hard to do for myself. And I also find people don't want to do it. How did you actually, how do you actually do that? Like, did you get an app or? So I was using FreshBooks for a while. I really liked their time tracking system and I was tracking by the, by six minutes. So 0.1. And basically every time I'm one of those people, I am very habit oriented, but it takes me a while to start a new habit, but I really invested in this. And so once two weeks, let's say that it became sort of second nature. Every time I finished a task, I would always have the fresh tab, a fresh books tab open. And I would just put it in there. And I had like predetermined subjects. Like, was I pitching? Was I on a meeting? Was I writing a byline? Right. Whatever it was. So I could even break down in this project. I spent more time on meetings, which I hate. I feel like those are always inefficient versus outreach, right? Which is what gets you deliverables. Uh And I need to do something about managing that, right? So it was super helpful. And it was, I think, again, the thing that was most insightful was how I thought I was spending my time was so different than how I actually was spending my time. Wow. That's amazing. And that's amazing that you implemented that like that. Did you have to, is there an actual timer like you turn it on and turn it off? You can, but yeah. I didn't use a timer. I just sort of would like write things down. I, I've i always been a writer when I kind of have like so many like random post-its in my office uh-huh. that I just like write notes uh-huh. down on. Yeah. But they do have timers. <laughs> and I actually think I was looking in QuickBooks I, or Intuit, like their SaaS program. I'm pretty sure they have a timer. And I was actually, oh, I think I might've even started on Excel, which was much, le- much less efficient. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of things out there. I think I've, I've looked into it. So I think there's even some apps that are specific to it. So I would say find the one that works with you user interface wise, because I think that's important. But I, I really highly recommend it. I think it's something worth, worth investing in. And in the end, it doesn't really take too much of your time to record the time, but the insights you get out of it are so valuable. Oh, that is great advice, Renee. Thanks for sharing. And I'm, again, so impressed that you did that. I can only imagine, I mean, having those insights and seeing one client is actually taking up more time than another when you thought the opposite. I mean, that is so invaluable. Well, and it's funny too, because it goes back to, and again, something we've also talked about extensively is the filters through which you see things. You might perceive one client as making a lot more requests or seemingly creeping outside the scope of work more so than another. Mm -hmm. And so that filter almost makes you think that you're putting more time into it when that might not actually be the case. So that's, you know, been also interesting in terms of what requests do I deem more outside of the scope, right? And how do I avoid that? And I think it goes back to process, right? Which is something we've also talked about. How am I seeing something? How does that impact sort of the work and how I'm perceiving my time? Right, right. I want to go back to something you said, because I just love your business model so much in PR specifically, but also as it relates to how I think any small service business, I mean, if you're a solopreneur, even if you start to have people working for you, which you do now, is that the, the, your model is actually something that 
I think anybody that's in a retainer business could implement. And even though I know you said in some ways it makes it harder for you because you're always looking for new clients. I would say retainer businesses are also usually always looking for new clients. Um, And also if you were to, because you do these short project basis, I I don't know exactly. I don't remember exactly how much you charge for things, but if you're charging $30,000 and the project is two months, like your retainer is 15 grand a month. Like it's, you know, you might not have it for the year, but your retainer is higher than a lot of PR companies might be. I agree. Yeah, that's right. And we are in about at about that range right now. And but I think the way that I position it and truthfully, when you look at it in an annual basis, you end up spending less with us to get more. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'll give you an example. We've been working with uh, a large mutual fund company for six years now, and they have a couple of different brands and they constantly launch new funds, right? So those are often opportunities to engage with press. But we tend to work with them, let's say two to four times a year, depending upon what they have going on. But we tend to package a a lot of those announcements into one project and couple that with what I'll dub a thought leadership campaign, which might be commenting on market trends or writing op-eds to submit to different um, publications, right? So altogether, there's a really rich opportunity for storylines. And within a two or three month period, we might get them 30 or 40 pieces of coverage, right? And that's because we're going after a lot of storylines at one time. Mm -hmm. It gives us the opportunity to do that. So then if we engage three or four times in the year, that's 100 pieces of coverage, right? And if you want to, let's say it's like 120 just to make it even. So that averages out to about 10 pieces of uh, content a month, right? Mm -hmm. And while they might not all run within a month, a lot of press tends to spread itself out. And it'll be it'll be right, at least with within different sections of the calendar year. And if you compare that with a retainer agency, right, at least in my experience, I have not really worked or seen agencies that have been able to generate that for startups, right, on a consistent basis. And it's not necessarily always the agency's fault, right? Sometimes there's just no content to pitch, right? Sometimes you're like scraping at the bottom of the barrel in hopes that something will will catch. But But you don't take those clients. Exactly. That's the point that we don't want to engage when that's the case because there's so many variables that makes it bad on so many sides. It makes us look bad to press, right? We don't want to be flooding people's inbox when there's not a story to share. We don't want to be taking people's money when we can't deliver something. And we don't want to be like stressing out over the fact that we can't get something, right? Right. So- it is win-win in that way. And that's sort of our guiding star and principle. And I definitely think agencies are capable of doing this. I think more and more agencies are actually considering project work. I mean, even when I was at agencies, uh, they were taking on project worth. I think it was a lot smaller and certainly not the focus. But I think because of all the pushback and transition we're seeing with advertising agencies, PR agencies are sort of having to align because of that, right? And Mm -hmm. work with clients in a more amenable fashion, right? Where I think project basis sort of speaks more to ROI as opposed to just this consistent payment and not necessarily sure if you're going to get something in return. 
Absolutely. I mean, it, it's so attractive, Renee. Like you are, you are at the forefront of this. And, and the thing I want to bring up, because I mean, let me just reiterate like how incredible that is. You guys got us again for like an art show in Brooklyn that wasn't even really like the, the focus. I think you were reaching out to all publications you've never spoken to before. You got us like 20 something hits of press. I mean, we had 2000 people at this event that in this, in this space that remember this space. I mean, I don't think it could hold more than 200. We had to turn most of those people away, but because you guys got us all that press, you get, you get results. And so I'm going to put it to you again. Like I put it to you five years ago. Why don't you guarantee results? I know PR doesn't do it. I think you should because you do. And remember I think I said this to you once. I wrote an article mentioning this. I don't think I said you by name because I don't want to call you out, but I'm calling you out because it's my podcast. I said, (laughs) Renee, why don't you guarantee press? And what did you say? Because it's advertisements. Because you can't can't guarantee that they're going to publish it. All you can do is pitch, right? Right. That's what you said. And I said, yeah, but have you ever not gotten somebody press? Have you ever stopped? Like if you had a hard time getting someone press, did you not, did you not keep going until you got them pressed because Renee, I know you, you would never take a project, not get someone any press. And then. <laughs> no, that is, that is true. We've never press. Yeah. We've gotten multiple pieces of press for every project we've taken on in the last seven and a half years. Well, I told you, why don't you charge more and say, I guarantee you press or your money back because it would be, you would make more money saying that. Well, here's where I get frankly, a little uncomfortable with that. And it's Mm -hmm. because of my relationships on the media side. So there was a PR firm. I don't know the name of it, but they were basically uh, positioning themselves as a pay for play placement firm, essentially meaning you want to Pia, you want to be in TechCrunch, that's two grand. And when we get you in TechCrunch, you're going to pay us two grand. And putting a price tag on outlets and publicizing mm. that. I get those offers all the time. Oh, and TechCrunch found out and wrote a scathing report about it so much so that the PR firm went out of business. And basically, the editor wrote, if you paid this PR person to get you press in TechCrunch, let me know and I will personally reimburse you. And I can sort of understand why why? they might feel that way. And it's because think about the way press media make money, right? They make money off of advertisements, right? Where they're getting paid for their placements and from subscriptions, right? So the thought that somebody else is getting paid for a placement in their particular publication, I guess could sort of feel maybe, I don't know if disrespectful is the right word, but sort of feel unprofessional maybe a bit versus I'm working with somebody who's helping us shape the story and also engage with press. And that may land in a number of publications. I mean, right, we might have a target like we might work with you and you might say TechCrunch is our goal, right? Since we're talking about them and we'll target them and we'll try a million ways to try and get in there based on your story and what they publish. But I can't guarantee that TechCrunch will publish your story, okay, right? But and- that's different. That's connecting it to the publication as opposed to just connecting it to getting somebody press in the first place, which is the thing PR agencies won't do. Yeah, I don't know. I guess 
I don't know. I don't have a response to that then. I guess it's just – I'm dying I'm for you stuck. to do this, Renee. <laughs> I know. I wonder – maybe I should – Maybe I should just like write a blog about it and put it and post it and use that. I don't know. I have to think through this because maybe I'm just putting my own filter on it. My own like, that's not the way things are done filter when there's no maybe real reason why that's not the case. But That's what I'm saying because to me, from the outside as a client, I'm going, why can't you guarantee you're going to get me press? Why are you taking me on as a client? If you don't know, you can get me press. And then they hide behind this. I've had these conversations. They hide behind this. Well, I mean, we can't. We're not them. Ultimately, it's up to the writers. And it's like, yeah, but you've been doing this for, you know, however long. And whether or not you can get, not in this publication specifically, but whether or not you can get this in some credible publications or not. And if you really can't guarantee that, then you shouldn't take me on as a client or or you should be willing to get give my, my money back because I'm not paying for you to try. I'm paying for results. And I say all of this to you because you get more results than anybody. So I'm no, like, I you're the perfect person you. to say this. I know. And, and I totally agree with you. People are should be paying for results and not for the attempt. And that's funny because I'm in this group on Facebook that's a bunch of publicists, like a professional sort of group. And Mm -hmm. you constantly see publicists complaining about clients who complain that they're paying and not getting results. And that's sort of (laughs) odd to me. But you'll get them results then. Don't complain. (laughs) Well, I will say you'll find people who complain and it's sometimes because they don't like the media they're placed in. So this might be another interesting conversation. So with media and in PR in general, and this might be true for branding too. I'd be curious if, if you find this, but it's one of those areas that I think a lot of people know how to think they know how to do it, but just want to hire somebody, you know, to do it. And so they can sort of be instructive or They have a lot of expectations as to what can be accomplished from the get-go, even if you sort of tell them otherwise, right? But I feel that way also about media brands. So people look at media outlets the same way sort of they do designer clothes, right? There's, ooh, I'm in the Wall Street Journal. Ooh, I'm in the New York Times. Same thing as like, (laughs) look at my Gucci belt, right? And I'm not saying that in any way to put down the Times or the Journal. Obviously, they're both extremely respectable publications, and there's certainly a time and place for them, right? But take USA Today, for example. They are the largest or the the widest circulation paper, right, in the United States, which means, yes, engagement-wise, you get a lot. Think about it. They're like in every hotel you stay in. There's a wide distribution, but my mutual fund client, right, it's much more valuable for them to be in, in investment news, right, which caters to the financial advisor community as opposed to being in USA Today, even though investment news has a fraction of the circulation. Of course, it's um, more targeted. That's what marketing, good marketing is. It's targeted right. to the people you're actually trying to talk to. Who cares it, if a billion people see it if none of them are your clients? Oh, my gosh. You have no idea that that number drives so many people's expectations of PR and sort of where placement should go. And it's funny because there's a, I think I have to have a lot of strategic conversations about that, but 
it's sort of funny to me because I think a lot of times people will prefer the sort of designer brands, right? Sure. Even if they have a publication that's servicing their specific audience because they've never heard of it before. And so sort of bringing this full circle, the reason I bring this up is even if I get we get press for clients, sometimes they feel disgruntled or not disgruntled, that's too harsh of a word, but they feel maybe a little let down because their story is appearing more in those trade publications than a full feature in the journal. But that's because their, their story doesn't warrant a full feature in the journal, right? So I think there's, there's sort of what's ca- possible and capable and sort of making sure that those are aligned with expectations and also sort of having a bit of education there. Because I think, I think the process of getting press is sort of foreign to a lot of people. And because you have those strategic conversations, because you know to have those strategic conversations, because you know to educate your clients and to ask them those questions to weed out the people who just want designer press that's frankly impossible to get because they don't have a good story and they're not press worthy. All of those things are what make you the expert that that commands the high prices that you get. It's so funny. You always have to tell me this. I'm like, yeah, you're right, Pia. Thanks. <laughs> but I think, you know, Seriously. as a business owner, it's it's nice to have sometimes the that you don't always see yourself that way. Right. Well, I'll be your mirror today. Okay, thanks. Renee. <laughs> yeah, because I, I hear you and I can see how a lot of people might be in this space, just like there are people in every space who are new or or haven't gotten to the level that you've gotten to where they're even maybe aware of that or maybe understand how to manage expectations how to how to really filter out clients who are not a good fit who are not well positioned to get value who you maybe just are not a good fit for right like you have you have really narrowed your focus on the kinds of clients that you work with and so a client out of left field in an industry that nothing about as good as you are in PR, you don't have those relationships. So it would be harder for you. So you decide I'm not going to, I can't even think of what it is, like food. Right. Exactly. That's <laughs> a great example. No, right? that's a great example. I would refer those out. Right. You would refer those out. That's integrity. That's expertise. So I, the reason I, I'm bringing this up is because I think it's a lesson to us all that, that the goal in order to get that those premium clients in order like these juicy clients we're talking about right they're the ones who respect what you do Renee they they listen to you when you tell them like strategically a you're not going to get a full page in the Wall Street Journal because your story doesn't warrant that however I'm going to get you these things because that's actually what's going to get your goal forward and when they see that and then listen to you and then you deliver on that you create that expectation and then you deliver on it as promised and that all creates that juicy delicious trust and warm feelings that brings them back <laughs> to hire you again and again and then when you raise your price they don't blink all of that stuff that's what everyone wants that comes from having confidence in your process and also having spent years building that process and expertise so that you can say that stuff with authority in a way that I would imagine the people you're talking about that are complaining in that PR group haven't built that yet, might not even know that they should build that, (laughs) right? Like that's not even on their radar. Yeah, it's, it's true. And I think it's also, I think I was fortunate enough to come out of a media company, right, and doing media and doing PR for a media company. And so I saw the process of what goes into creating a media story, right? So 
I think that that's really important in how you approach PR, right? And so the more you can sort of understand the inner workings of how media works, right, the more successful you can be and the more you can pass that along, I think in the end, the more successful the client will be. Yeah, well, and pairing that with what you were talking about at the beginning, which is just kind of a a hunger for always learning and getting better. And I mean, tracking your time to figure out how you can make your process more efficient and and that all of these (laughs) things are what is going into you being able to have that kind of authority speaking to a client. And I think I, I know you already say no to tons of clients. So even when you say like, I have a hard time saying no, like we're talking about it at a very high level <laughs> that you're like having a hard time saying no to those clients who are almost a perfect fit, <laughs> but like, or whatever. My point is the more, the more you do this, the more I think you'll start to see how you really are whether you say the guarantee thing or not, that's just more of like, a, like I had that idea when speaking to you like six years ago and I've just been like dying for you to do it ever since. But I think that whether or not you actually put that on your website or even just say it to a client, I think the expectation is there because you've created that expectation for yourself. Like you would, you guarantee press to people even if you don't say it because I know you would never not get people press and quite the opposite. You're getting them way more press than anybody else would. And so I'm just saying like, hey, I think there's opportunity in in that because that's the thing that people hate about PR. (laughs) It is true. You're maybe you're inspiring me to go uh, change my website and write some new messaging. (laughs) I would I would just be even curious, like, do you know how on what is it? JetBlue? I think maybe JetBlue, you pay more for a a flight if you can refund it. It's kind of oh, something yeah. like that. A lot of them are like that. Uh-huh. I think so. Yeah. It's like you can pay a premium to get the guarantee. And I didn't make this up. I I should I forget this guy's name, but somebody gave a presentation at EOA like years ago and he t- called it the obnoxious guarantee. And that's kind of where I got it because you were the person I thought of when I when I heard this. He basically said, charge 50% more, make an obnoxious guarantee. You may refund somebody once, but the amount of additional money you'll make from having the balls <laughs> to make a guarantee that also makes the people feel more secure because really all they want is the value. All they want is the outcome. People are willing to pay. That's why we talk about selling based on value. People are willing to pay so much more to get the outcome that they want. And I just think the PR is like ripe for the picking. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I, you're giving me a lot to think about. I wonder, I, do you, I wonder if I'm interested in seeing that presentation. Was it recorded? I'll, I'll find it after. And, okay. um, and, I'll, and I'll send, yeah, because I, I, I quoted him in a Forbes article I wrote about this where I'm talking about you too. Maybe I mentioned you I think in you that. did you send it to me. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, yeah. Us. Okay, I'll, I'll find it and put it in the show notes too. Because then I, my other friend who's in PR... Ciara, who was yes. on this show, she like put a response on HuffPost about in order in response to my article because she was kind of like arguing the opposite about not being able to about not being able to guarantee because you can't control what the journalists write. But again, going back to the yeah, but if you pick your clients right, you you basically can. But I think that's also understanding like I think. T- what's in the media, right? Like I've 
when I went out on my own, I mm-hmm. one thing I kept saying to myself was like, if I'm going to bill myself as this media relations expert, I better be a media relations expert, right? And so I need to know everything the media is covering. So mm. I read at least three dozen newsletters from probably 20 outlets every single morning. And oh I... Yeah. I mean, it's. I literally spend at least an hour reading the news from Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, Ad Age, Ad Week, Fortune. I could keep going. And that's because I need to know what people are writing about, right? Like, how could somebody trust me to tell them this is this is what the media will be interested in if I don't know what the media is writing about, right? So I think there's that portion of it that helps you know what will work and what won't. But that's, that's super a constant thing. That's super inspiring, by the way. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> no, I was just going to say it's it's one of those things that like I can't – it's, again, another muscle discipline, which is I think probably everybody struggles with. But sometimes I definitely struggle with the self-discipline. But yeah. it it's that discipline of I do it every single morning without fail because that's what makes me – good at my job, right? And that's what makes me be able to say, I know what I'm talking about. And that's, I've done it for at least, I would say the last six and a half, seven years. I wouldn't say I implemented it as soon as we started, but pretty soon thereafter. And every time I get a new client in, let's say a new area, and let's say there's a outlet I'm not familiar with, I'll sign up for their newsletter to make sure I read it every day. And I just don't know that many media relations professionals do that. And so Definitely it's hard to not. give advice on media when you're like, I don't know what was chironed on CNBC this morning. Well, how did you come up with that? Where did you get the idea to do that? So I'll, I'll tell a little story. Yeah. I When I started in PR, I don't want to say the, the media company because some people might not love me for it, but I applied to a blind listing and landed at a large media company and was in their media relations department. And they're just the best in the business, the best I've ever worked with. And they are extremely well known among journalists. And they were just so good at their jobs. And one of the things the SVP was a woman sat me down when I first started the job and told me is, you have to learn to read media like a publicist. And I never really understood it in the beginning, but she said, I when I go to get my nails done or a pedicure, I take all of the magazines and I read them as a publicist. And now I totally understand it. And it's it's not that you read a story, it's you read a story and then you read why was it published today, right? Like what inspired this story? Like what are the sort of juicy details here or what's left to be explored, right? And when you start looking at media stories that way, you see opportunity. And so I say all of this because in order for me, again, to be the best at my job is I need to be able to spot those opportunities. And I can't do that if I'm not reading the press and if I'm like not reading it as a publicist. So I've done it sort of ever since. And like I said, it's sort of time consuming, but well worth it. And I mean, it really sounds like it must sharpen your mind to be, you're priming your brain on the topic so that when you go to work, this is the stuff that's top of mind. And then you're going to think about it when you're pitching, right? Or coming up with stories or. Absolutely. And you also see, it's interesting when you read lots of different media frequently, you start to see like, not every, there are biases, right? And it's not, let's say, 
explicit, but one publication might cover a story different than another publication who covers the exact same story. And that's also helpful for understanding. We want to tell this story, which outlets better. So I think all of those little nuances are important for really developing a strategic media relations plan. And you can't have that if you don't know what people are writing. Wow. That is such a great case study and example of what it really means to be an expert in your space, going above and beyond to just continually get better and be the sharpest tool in the toolbox. I mean, and especially in PR, and I think this is true in marketing in general, but in all of, in all of our spaces, the more these, especially in marketing, it's constantly changing. So you can't be an expert and then stay in a vacuum. You have to always be up on whatever's going on that will make you more valuable than the people who stopped learning. Absolutely. Whenever. And I think a lot of people kind of rest on their laurels or on whatever, whenever they felt like they achieved expert status. <laughs> and, and that's, you're not, you're, people are going to pass you by. People like Renee are passing you by, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's what I love about you, Pia. You're always working on something different and and sort of working to hone a different expertise. And I love that because you guys have done so much and it's evolved in so many interesting ways because of that expertise. Well, thank you. It's funny because every time I start something new or have to learn something new, I'm like, okay, one more thing. <laughs> it's like, that's what I mean by the like, oh, I'll get there and it'll be done. Like it's never done. And that's okay. That's what will make us better. Valuable. Yeah, valuable. And also be able to adjust as things change as they are changing faster than ever before. You can only change if you're willing to roll with the punches and keep learning. And learning and change is hard. So just the act of being good at learning and changing, I think is one of the most valuable things. I mean, when I think about raising my son, I think the number one thing I need to teach him is adaptability (laughs) and how to learn. If you're adaptable and how to learn, I don't care what you learn about. I just want you to know how to learn and how to be adaptable because those are the most important skills. It's so smart. I feel like you just have to always be curious and hungry to want to know more. I think the death of expertise is being like, oh, I know everything, right? Because I think there's always something new to know and new to learn. And I think it's important to always keep that hunger and think that there's still more to achieve or still more to uncover and not just say like, okay, I know everything I need to know. Right. And, and I think some people might shy away from the idea of always needing and wanting more, but I think it's not so much because you need more. It's because that's, that's just growth. Like that's just life. (laughs) Life is, is growth. And if you stop growing, you kind of start dying. I agree. It's funny. Uh, my husband, Bill, is sort of that person. He's very, he's just always content. And I respect that so much because I think happiness isn't something that like you're striving to achieve, right? It should be something you have now. But he's definitely more of, you know, like enjoy the ride where I'm more of like, okay, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? I need to focus <laughs> on this. And I feel like I don't think one way is right or wrong. I think go back to, I always, I probably am going to say the name of this book wrong, but in college, I read Aristotle's uh, Nicomachean Ethics. And his whole point is there's always going to be somebody greater and somebody less. And like, 
true virtue is found in the middle, right? Somewhere in the middle. And so I think the same thing about this. There's got to be some sort of happy medium between this hunger for learning and growth and wanting to do more and, and learn more, but also sort of like being content and happy and sort of enjoying the ride. I mean, that the marriage of those two, the happy medium is is what I think about trying to hit every single day. I know it's so hard, right? It is hard. It is hard. It's easy. I mean, I'm an I'm an extreme person. I know you're like you and I are both pretty intense people. Yes. (laughs) Like I I like intensity and that that happy medium is the opposite of intensity. (laughs) It's it's don't be too intense in either direction. So I find myself going soup like go hard, super hard and intense in that direction, and then deep chill. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Turn off yes. completely. Don't like nothing. Go off the grid. So I go off the grid so much. <laughs> no, it's very true. I'm the same way. I am the same way. And I think there's there's a good thing, I think, though, in the pursuit of trying to find that happy medium. Because I right, the first step is knowing. <laughs> so <laughs> knowing um, you have a problem. <laughs> right. Yes. And I think it's something I consciously think about for sure. Even with like this we year. Said you were meditating. You know. I fall in and out. I use the Calm app because I find guided meditation helpful. Another thing Ray Dalio (laughs) and Principles talk about, I guess he got into, I'm going to botch this, but some sort of meditation that the Beatles got into in India. And so he was like really inspired by it in the 70s and has Mm -hmm. been doing it ever since and says it's like the best thing he's done to help him align his logical and emotional brains, which is another part of the book. But I know the benefits of it. It's one of those things, like what I was saying earlier, I'm a creature of habit, but because I haven't instilled the habit yet, it's been really hard for me to keep up with it. But I do find it super beneficial. That and just exercising in general has always been helpful for me to clear my mind. If I didn't have that, I think I would be very anxiety ridden 24 yeah. seven. It's very, it's a good release for me. Do you uh, meditate before or after your hour of news consumption? (laughs) Usually after. It's bad. You know, that's crazy. (laughs) I don't have a great morning routine. I will say that I've I've read Miracle Morning. I read a lot of and did you ever try it? I did it for a while. I did. I read it while I was on vacation. I was really inspired by it. But then I like fell off the grid. I also follow follow this guy on Instagram called before 5am, I think. Um, And his whole thing is like, oh, I don't do that. (laughs) I tried. (laughs) And I'm definitely a morning person. But I, I am that person who wakes up and like the first thing I do is check my email and I just start reading everything and going through because I want to know what's going on in the day. So I don't know if it's the best habit, but it is one of the first things that I do. Yeah, I definitely did the 5 a.m. Miracle Morning for for at least six months. Did you um, find it helpful? I I enjoyed it because I grew up... I mean, I'm a morning person too. I, I actually open my eyes at 530 every morning these days. Um, wow. Not, not intentionally. My, <laughs> well, Axel wakes us up many days at 530. Not every day, but because of that habit just over the last two years, I don't know. I've always been a morning person. Steve too. Like we're both just awake at like 5, 530. That doesn't mean I get up. That's the thing. I don't want to get up. I just want to roll around <laughs> for two hours. <laughs> but I, but my eyes are open. I did the miracle morning. It was, it was nice. It, it but I, I think it was actually feeding the wrong thing. Like it was feeding my productivity itch. You know. Oh, now I'm getting up at five and I'm like doing all these. 
I, I'm visioning and I'm meditating and I'm reading and I'm getting so much done at five o'clock. And I don't think it was maybe, I don't think it was doing the thing it was supposed to do, which was chill me out. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I will say my morning routine is one thing I've struggled with always since I started, since I went out on my own. And I think it goes back to like discipline, but also finding what's right for me. I'm not the type of person who wants to get up and go right away. Like I like to like dilly dally, you know, Mm -hmm. like and put on an episode of Real Housewives if I missed it last night. That's my guilty pleasure on Bravo. Don't judge. (laughs) But you know, like I, and I wake up early on purpose to do that, like at 630 or something. So I can Uh get that out of the way. But in, I'm also reading the news while I'm doing that. So it's hard for me to – I have never really found the division between like starting my day and then starting my work day. And I think in some ways that's been not great. Like I'll start answering emails at 7 o'clock if I see them, right? But I don't know if that's necessarily the most productive way. And it's something I'm struggling, but I think is really important to find that good morning routine because I do think it like sets the foundation for the whole day. Yeah, I I agree. And I mean, over the years, until a couple years ago, until we went to on a like two month trip to Europe, actually, I was all about like waking up very early. I went to the boot camp at the gym. Oh, at, like, wow. Six or seven, like three or four times a week. It feels really good to do that, to like, exercise hard in the morning. And if I wasn't working or if I wasn't kind of done with my workout and shower and eaten and like on the way to the office by nine, then I was starting to feel like it was getting late. And then I went to Europe and just had such an experience of not doing any of that and like being super productive later in the day and it not mattering at all. And was like, hmm, maybe I don't need to do this. <laughs> maybe, maybe I can just like relax and enjoy my mornings. And so I've I've been doing that the last few years, like really not working at all when I first wake up, really trying not to look at my phone. But of course, now I have a toddler and he was a baby and an infant before that. So it kind of naturally also got filled in with taking care of baby. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so I only got to really do the like relaxing and just for myself while I was pregnant. (laughs) That was it. Well, it's so interesting you say that about Europe because I remember when we went to Spain a couple of years ago and watching them siesta, right? And even then, like I felt like the in like Barcelona, the streets really didn't get like busy until 10 a.m. and they take a siesta, right? That we sort of have these self-imposed like timelines and deadlines that we put on ourselves that aren't necessarily real. And I always think about it because I'm a to-do list person. I don't know if you are, but I always have a to-do list on my phone and I feel sort of anxiety ridden when I have a list and I can't, like, I love the feeling of crossing something off oh, my to-do I know. list. Oh, I so know. <laughs> it feels like I push myself to want to start work early so that I can get my to-do list done. But it is sort of a self, I mean, of course, I work in media, so there's things that like need to get done quickly, but other things, they're sur- sort of self-imposed. And I don't know if it's a good or bad thing, right? Like versus like your, to your point, like you can be productive without having that, that rush. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, I, okay, listen, I completely relate to the crossing things off the list. Oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's practically a drug. <laughs> I mean, it's an it addiction is. and a drug. It's like, you get I'm, a high. Yeah, you get a high. And I am so aware of that, that like, sometimes when I'm like struggling, I know that that will make me 
feel better. Like just make a list and then do the things on the list and then I'll feel better. And I am so aware of that that I actually try not to do it because it feels like a, it feels like what I would imagine someone who's addicted to drugs doing. <laughs> like that's literally how I see it. So I often like won't even make myself feel better because it feels like a cheap way to do it. Wow, that's interesting. And now I feel cheap for saying that. <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> Renee, I'm saying we're the same person. No, <laughs> I'm funny, just saying. I, I do definitely like I get giddy. It's so embarrassing, uh-huh. but true. I'm like, ooh, crossing this off my list. And it definitely pushes me to be like, okay, I got to get to the office by 8 a.m. because I have this whole list of things to do. And if I have like six things on my list and then come 10 a.m., I'm like, all my stuff off my list is done. And like, I'm sure I have other things to do. Right. But like what I thought was going to take so long and was going to like impede my whole day, I rushed to the office to do right. or rushed to get done. And it didn't actually have to get done in that time frame. And because then you just put more things on your list. And that's right. And it's not like the list, the list, that's the thing. The list is never done. Like you can make a list and then cross everything off, but there'll just be more things on your list tomorrow. And I, I'm like acutely aware. I mean, a lot of because of the the coaching program that you and I both did and like yeah. Evan Horowitz, is, he's got a real good take on this and he's like us too. So, so he really understands it. But just being so aware that this is like a, it's a pattern, it's a habit. It's, it feels like it's something that's pressing and it's a really good thing to do. I was raised to think like, checking things off a list. That's a really good thing to do. But I I don't, I think it's, I don't, I think it's less, I think that it is clearly just a habit of being and, and it's, it's hiding. It's like insidious. It's hiding behind this idea that, oh, that's good and productive. And that's just being like a good productive person. But actually it's just like almost a bad habit. (laughs) Absolutely. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I think you described that really well. And it's funny you say all these things because my to-do list is a note on my iPhone that never gets deleted. It's never deleted. The note is never deleted. It's just always added to. There's always things on it. So it is never ending. And there's sort of a stress and pressure that comes with that. And it's funny you say it's good because that's in that coaching uh, course, one of the things I had an interesting reaction to is the idea of like what's good versus what is bad. Mm-hmm. And it is sort of a good ideal and sort of align uh-huh. with your self-worth kind of like, ooh, I'm being productive. And and it's not nece- that's not necessarily real. And that's a hard thing for me to sever. Oh, me too. <laughs> but I'm right, <laughs> I'm right there with you. It, but yeah, I actually, I will say the other thing that I took away from, from that, that's been super helpful recently with the pandemic and just falling out of routines is the 30 day challenge, which I think a lot of like leadership and coaching programs use, but the idea of like building the self-discipline muscle and trying to do something for 30 days. And I'm doing, I'm reading, which is why I'm flying through this Ray Dalio book. Cause it's, it's pretty long, but, um, I'm on day 11 today, and I don't know if I'm going to make it to day 30, but the idea of if I miss one of the days and have to go back to number one will be another thing of like, that wasn't a good thing, right? So I have right. to sort of sever that idea, ideal as well. But I well, think that the 30-day thing is another thing that's been super helpful in terms of like building that self-discipline muscle. 
Absolutely. Well, so let me just quickly explain what that is. It's basically to pick anything. And they really recommend that you pick something that's small, like even something that just takes five minutes. But you pick anything and you just commit that you're going to do it for 30 days in a row, come hell or high water. And and uh, if you miss a day, you have to start at the beginning again. And the it's really surprisingly hard to do. And I had a lot of resistance to it because I don't like to do anything that I'm supposed to do. And the second (laughs) I had to do it, I was like, I don't want to do that. But I had to do it to get into the goals. That was like a requirement that you had to finish your 30 days first, which made me even more angry about doing it. (laughs) (laughs) But I did it. But the thing that it does that's so powerful, and tell me if and this is what you mean about the discipline, I I found it almost gives you more, it adds to, it's a great way to build self, self-confidence. What's the word? Your self-esteem. It's a great way to build self-esteem because it's like, it's just a really easy way to, to set an expectation for yourself and meet it, to make your word, your bond, to say, I'm going to do this thing and then, and then actually do it and commit to it. And just the act of doing it, even if it's not because people say, oh, I'm going to do yoga every day. It's like, that's that's too much. Like you might right. have to miss a day. Start small. But just trying to do that for 30 days, it's surprisingly hard. And it can be really, really valuable and and discipline building, like you're saying. I agree. I So when I first started, when I was first introduced to the challenge, I did, mine was a headstand because I'm into yoga and I've been trying that. to- to yeah. build that practice. And it took me a couple tries to get to 30. Um, and I finally got, and it was, what was interesting for me too, in addition to the self-esteem, there's a lot of self-awareness. And another thing we've talked about before is the idea that when you fail, right? Like, or when you miss a day, right? It's not just that you missed a day. It's like, why did you miss that? And like sort of exploring what was the lapse and the commitment there. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of, at least for me, made me realize for better or worse, especially in my personal life, sometimes I wasn't really committing to things that I would say if it was like plans, right? Or if I said I was going to call someone. And it sort of shows you that you you have these challenges of like you do you do need to align what you say with what you do and sometimes that alignment isn't always there and i found that very insightful because i think it showed me that it wasn't just in the challenge but maybe other areas of my life where i was sort of lacking on commitment you know and sort of looking at why that was happening because i think that that's you know equally important not just that it happened but like what was the catalyst for it ooh that's really good i really like that yeah, it's it's amazing how many things that that I know I think about all the time. I know. <laughs> what did you start your first thing with? Do you remember the first one I did because I was feeling so defiant because I had a you know you had to text your coach. Uh huh. So right? that was your thing. J- well, you had to do your thing and then text your coach, and I was so annoyed that I had to text somebody <laughs> about it. I had to do something and text somebody, especially because I felt like. I could do this with my eyes closed. Like I did the Miracle Morning where I, because this was about six months after I had done Miracle Morning. I was like, I did Miracle Morning where I woke up at five o'clock and spent an hour reading by candlelight, visioning, meditating, stretching, blah, blah, blah. I did that every day and didn't miss a day for like six months. So I can do this. <laughs> I don't need to prove it to anybody. So the thing I chose was just to text my coach. <laughs> I was like, I'm just like, that will be my thing. Just that I'm texting you that I did it. And that was a lot. There was like a lot there. 
you know, like what's wrong with you that you are so defiant about this thing? And how is, and more so like, how is this holding you back? Right. It's not so much like, so what? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It, it only matters as it relates to, well, how is this stopping me from doing things that I have such a strong reaction to having to do something that's some, like that someone else is telling me to do? Like, I know there's so much that comes up with so it. So much. I remember when I was first introduced to it, I like in the group, there was a guy who had been doing it for a while and he was like on day a hundred. He was doing like five pushups a day or something. And in my head, I like did not realize what an accomplishment that was until I started the 30 day challenge. And like, I think I'm, it must have taken me at least three attempts to get to 30 days for the first time. And I was like, I, and then I tried to keep going and I like dropped off after day 32 or something. So I was to stick with something oh, for yeah. that long is so impressive, especially when it's a new habit, not like brushing your teeth or, or taking a shower or washing your face, right? Something that's new and to keep up with it for that long. It's so impressive. Oh, yeah. Did they tell you the story? I remember when they explained it, that the story they told us was somebody who had been doing it, yeah, for like 100 days or had been doing it for a very long time. And his thing was to play guitar. Like even if it was just for five minutes, he had to play guitar every day and that he was in an airport and his luggage got lost and he didn't have a guitar. And he like found someone who had a guitar and was like, hey, I need to play your guitar. <laughs> oh my minutes. gosh. No, I've never heard of it. That's oh, yeah. amazing. Yeah. Talk about just, dedication. Yeah. Because, well, that what that story says to me is, you know, it doesn't matter if he plays a guitar or not. It was about his commitment to, I am going to do this no matter what. And I think that is so powerful. It gives me the chills right now even because it, it, if you can create a situation where when you say you're going to do something, you know that you are definitely going to do it. What you do is you turn your word into truth. You, you, and I, and I have done so many things over the years to do this more and more that I, I feel pretty confident about my word being truth. I don't know to that extent, but the idea that if I say I'm going to do something, I just know I'm going to do it. There is no way. And the kind of power that that gives you when you're, for example, running a business, right. like being able to say, okay, you know what? I am going to learn that. And you're going to learn it because you don't let yourself down. It's true. And it's it's even more important to have that quality, I think, being a business owner, because nobody's, at least for me, the hardest thing was nobody's looking over you, telling you, you have right. to be at the office at this time. It has to get, it's all up to you. You have to set those boundaries and you have to be the one who commits to it. Like for me, one thing I'm working on now and not doing a great job at, to be completely honest, but is trying just to create more content for my blogs. Like I started this interview series with journalists where it just asks them a couple of questions. It's just like insight into their personalities. And I have to commit to blogging or at least doing it once or twice a week. And it's funny, I have it in my calendar and I haven't been that great at committing to it. But it's one of those things that like part of the reason I'm doing this challenge again is to like work on that because I know how important it is to say, okay, I'm going to commit to this and like I need to stick with it because one, there's a purpose for it. And two, like it's important if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. I love that. I love that you're going to do this to strengthen that. That is so <laughs> smart. Um, well, I don't have the coaching anymore. So I feel like I have to like implement it myself. But so that is going to work. <laughs> yeah, but that is you. That is you being your own coach, which is so cool. And and I'll say the 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 one last thing that I definitely that I got value out of from it is the facing the failure part of it. I don't know how much of this like hits you, but 
how do how do you feel about the word fail? Like, I don't like that word. Oh, I'm cringing <laughs> even as you say it. When I was saying it, I was like, do I want to use the word fail? That's so like tarnishing. No, it's but just... they, exactly. But they they make you use it. And I get it. And I was oh, that was such a um, trigger for me, too. But the that was important to realize that the word fail is triggering because for example, if you try to do this 30 day challenge and then you, and then you don't do it, you fail to do it because you forget a day, how crappy that feels. And how (laughs) hard it was to restart. I will say it wasn't like, I was like, all right, starting day one tomorrow. And it was like, oh, okay. I like fail. I can't, it's sort of like, it takes you a while to muster it back up. But I think the more you do it, the more you can be like, okay, I fell off yesterday. Like we're just going to start it again. Exactly. Because I think the message I got from it is you do feel like, oh, like, you know, it can feel really disheartening or and it can be unmotivating. But what are we doing here? We're we're trying things. We're failing. We got to get back up and do it again. And the better we are at that, that the more effectively we'll be able to jump right in. So if you even do this 30 day challenge and you fail over and over again, you get more accustomed to the idea that you fail and it really doesn't matter. You know, it's totally it's fine. So true. Start again. Everybody fails, right? I, yes. That's... It, oh, if you're doing something big, you're, especially, you can play really small and, and try to avoid the failures as much as possible. But what are you really doing? And I just think, I think we've talked talked this 30 day challenge up enough. Now, everybody who's listening, if you want to <laughs> do this, try it. I mean, pick do something. Do, pick something that you want to do that you can do just five minutes a day even, but but commit to doing it for 30 days and see how it feels. It sounds kind of cheesy, but obviously it's stuck with both of us because I first did this like years ago. <laughs> It's so true. And it's you, it's effective always, right? Yep. Sometimes you need to just start the 30-day challenge again. So <laughs> I think it's just a, it's an easy tool to have as something, you know, that builds yeah. an important skill. Yeah, it's so simple. Well, this has been amazing, Renee. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing uh, uh, everything about your business and uh, sparring with me here and there. I love talking to you about it. And I love your beautiful business. And you are such an inspiration for everyone who wants to be an expert in their field. Oh, thanks, Pia. Thanks for having me on. If you know any companies in the fintech or media entertainment category that need PR, telling them about ERPR Group will make you look like a superstar. Seriously, I recommend people to Renee frequently because she's such an easy referral because she won't take a client unless she knows that she's going to get them massive results, which is also why I want her to guarantee it. As you heard, I'll keep working on that. Also, if you know other entrepreneurs who struggle to put their business in its place and could benefit from hanging out with us, please share this podcast with them. Hard work can only take you so far. It's how you show up in your business that really makes the difference. And to make sure that you don't miss an episode of Show Your Business Who's Boss, hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast player. I have two pieces of inspiration to leave you with from my conversation with Renee today. First, What are you doing every day to make sure that you are becoming more and more expert in your industry? You want to be seen as the authority in your space? Then you need to be the authority. And second, try the 30-day challenge and let me know how it goes. It's harder than it sounds, but the payoff is great. Strengthening the power of your word to yourself and building more self-discipline will help you get farther in your business. I guarantee it. And that might just be your next step to showing your business who's boss.